This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the -the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. So Ethereum knocks on the door of $3,500. Things are getting real in the crypto markets, and it's really pretty amazing. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Thank you once again for joining us. If you're new, welcome. We try and provide a very accessible window into the mining industry. My background is kind of more investment related, but I have been involved for eight years now, going on nine or ten. And so that is where we're coming from. Thank you for joining us. So what I'm seeing out there, which is a bit of a shift, I was listening to Jim Paplava's Financial Sense News Hour on the weekend, and there you had Jim Bianco, who is a regular on surveillance, Bloomberg Surveillance, and he waxed poetic for 20 minutes on the virtues of Ethereum and decentralized finance and Uniswap. And, I mean, this is a bit of a shift, and it was like a big reveal. It's almost like he was doing a big reveal on what he had been studying, what a lot of us have been looking at for the last year. For me, only since last August or September did I start to clue in. And so my conclusion from this is mainstream money managers are starting to get the memo on crypto. And this has huge implications because once you get the memo on crypto and Uniswap and all these other DEXs, decentralized exchanges, and what the implications are, as Bianco called it, a parallel financial system, all of a sudden, if you start to understand and you educate yourself, a 5% allocation is like a a no-brainer at that point, one would think. So my impression... You have two, what I would consider mainstream money managers, a Jim Bianco talking to James Paplava. And if they're starting to get the message, and who knows? I mean, Jim Bianco sounds like he's been aware of this far longer than I have, so props to him. But the implications of this are quite huge because if all of a sudden the mainstream is starting to get a clue on crypto, that means that we're going to see a whole new level of money pouring into digital assets because all of a sudden it's not going to be rogue or maverick, you know, activity to allocate a mere 5% into crypto. I mean, you listen to Raul Powell of Real Vision. He's 100% in crypto. I'm 98% in crypto. And you know, it's funny. I have a couple of stocks, but I just believe in the stocks. I believe in the causes. And yeah, I think I'll make money in them. But I don't do it. It's almost out of a charitable. I do it for the good of society that I buy into these stocks. Non-mining related, by the way. Final point on this is if you're a mainstream money manager and you simply dismiss crypto and kind of laugh at Bitcoin at this point, you know, as Ethereum touches $3,500, 
you're going to lose 10 to 20% of your potential customers immediately. They're going to say, do not give this guy money. Do not give him our money. He, he does, this person does not know what they're doing. Now, that person may be wrong who says that, okay? The mainstream money manager may be right. Nevertheless, though, you still are going to get this 5 to 20% of people who are just going to say, no way. No way. We can't give this guy our money. He doesn't know what's going on. So it's quite interesting because people talk about what will, you know, create the next leg up in crypto. And if this starts getting mainstream in the way that I'm discussing, this could get pretty insane. And I think we're going there. It's getting pretty insane already, but I think if if what I'm seeing is accurate, if my reading is accurate, this is about to get a lot crazier. Not investment advice, folks. These are highly risky experimental markets, but that's where you find alpha at the end of the day, right? I mean, once it's safe and everybody knows what's going on, you kind of have missed your opportunity a lot of the time in these markets. So I don't want to dwell on that, but that is like, for me, uh, a shift in the zeitgeist. So it's worth addressing. Now, today's show is a really cool, interesting show. It's been a while since we've checked in on our gold companies. So I thought, let's take Ignico Eagle's conference call and just take a look at it, see what's going on. There was no huge news. But there was enough just interesting news, and you see how well they're doing. Agnico is a company that's firing on all cylinders, so I thought it would be very useful not just to have commentary on what's going on, but let's get it from a company, you know, something that's a little closer to the source of what's actually going on. So I thought this would be worth our while to listen to what Sean Boyd is saying uh, at last week's conference call with Nico Eagle, and it is very interesting. The company is firing on all cylinders. It is doing very well. As well, we have a great conversation. This is a Mining Minute, a sponsored episode, but listen, it's a great discussion, a five-minute discussion with Hugh Agro, president and CEO of Revival Gold, and they have the Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho, and Hugh has a background at Deutsche Bank, is sort of on the more corporate side of the industry. So we discuss M&A and sort of where he sees things. So this is a really fascinating mining minute we have, which is coming right up. And finally, uh, we have the Global Mining Symposium, which is coming up in a few weeks. It's in May. Just go to events.northernminer.com. Let me get you an exact date for you. May 19th and 20th. And you can register now. So that is events.northernminer.com. And you can see all sorts of very interesting speakers here. David Garofalo, Jake Klein from Evolution Mining, Anthony Downs, head of digital transformation at Valet, Anthony Malowski, Nickel 28, Ken Hoffman, McKinsey and Company, Dean Gehring, Executive Vice President, CTO of Newmont. So looks like they've got a very cutting-edge bunch of people ultimately trying to help you navigate where things are going. And it, everything is changing fast, as we can see. Uh, things are changing at lightning speed. And so register today at events.northernminer.com. 
and tune in to what they're going to say May 19th and 20th. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, as well as SoundCloud. Now let's turn to our next Mining Minute with Revival Gold President and CEO, Hugh Agro. Joining us once again is Hugh Agro. President and CEO of Revival Gold, who have the Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. Uh, thank you for joining us again, Hugh. Good to be with you, Adrian. It's great to have you again. And when I look at your biography, I see that you have experience in Deutsche Bank, that you were at Placer Dome and Kinross and sort of a corporate role. From your perspective, what is the state of play in the gold industry? Yeah, I've been in, in growth in gold uh, pretty much all my, my career, and it's a fascinating time. I mean, we've got these great conditions for gold, easy monetary policy, fiscal uh, spending, growth in debt, uh, improving economic fundamentals, fief currencies being debased at, a, at an alarming rate. And yet the metal hasn't uh, really moved in the last uh, quarter, in the last year, only up about 6% in the last year. And so it's, a, it's fascinating. It sets up a really interesting landscape for the plus or minus six dozen gold companies, royalty companies uh, in the public space. All of them are looking for uh, a way to become relevant to investors in a space that's uh, really become uh, marginalized by growth in uh, tech companies, the broader market generally, and I would say at the speculative end, uh, amongst the crypto uh, crowd. So there's this great quest for relevance. And and yet, it's at the same time, the gold uh, producers are making record uh, margins. Uh, free cash flow levels are at uh, 5 to 6% relative to the S&P 500, only running at about 1%. And we've got this uh, strong margin better than at the last, at the top of the last cycle, sitting at around $800 an ounce in 2020. So gold companies, gold producers, royalty companies are in great shape, but the mm -hmm. investing market, the general uh, uh, appetite for gold equities is at uh, rather low levels. These companies are trading at a 15% discount to what the, uh, the gold price implies that they should be trading at. And, and so this sort of sets up an interesting dynamic from an M&A perspective, from a growth perspective for the sector. Very briefly, because we don't have much time here, but what do you attribute to the, that lack of interest to? Do you, do you have a theory? Is this ESG? Uh, I mean, every conference call I listen to of gold companies, it starts with ESG. Uh, so it's obviously something they think is important. What do you attribute it to? Well, a large part of it has to do with the broader market, which has been going up in leaps and bounds. Uh, relative to the gold industry, which is confined by the constraints of geology, there just are not a lot of new gold projects to develop to feed growth. And I think the uh, I think that situation is going to turn head over heels uh, in favor of the gold mining industry. As the great Warren Buffett says, you want to be investing in businesses that have a moat around them, that are not reproducible, that are difficult to uh, to pull together. And if there is one business that's a difficult business, uh, in the current environment with the constraints of geology, it's the gold mining business. 
And I think there's a huge opportunity for investors to be positioned in that space. Uh, well, we've got these great macro fundamentals around uh, the debasement of currency, the scarcity of new gold projects, and great value in the sector. Okay, so tell me about uh, M&A then. Do you expect a wave, again, with your background, working for Deutsche Bank and everything, do you expect there to be a wave of M&A? Are we in a wave of M&A? Look, I think, uh, I think the past experience in the last cycle has been, uh, been beaten into the boards and the management teams of the senior gold companies. Uh, thou shalt not destroy capital. And the result of that is that there's a focus on organic growth, on uh, camp opportunities, on, uh, on exploration even, uh, internal organic uh, growth. So we're seeing this year that the big gold companies are spending 40% more capital on their, on their projects uh, for 2021, 30% increase in exploration spending uh, amongst the big gold players. And that's because they want to find value in their existing portfolios. And where they pursue exploration or where they pursue corporate development, external growth, I think it will be around brownfields assets. It'll be around camp consolidations. And it will be around assets that offer potential for big exploration success, future exploration success. And we're seeing that in some of the recent M&A. Uh, El Dorado uh, consolidating QMX gold uh, in, a camp, uh, in a camp situation. Agnico buying TMX a small bolt-on that's, uh, that's, that's in a, in a value-focused uh, area for them in Canada's north. Evolution picking up Battle Mountain Gold. I mean, uh, that's uh, right in the, in the new uh, area of focus for Evolution in the Red Lake camp. Excellent transaction infrastructure. Uh, that's a win-win uh, situation for, for Evolution and for Battle Mountain. Newmont bolting on GT Gold. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is to uh, ensure that in the long term, Newmont has growth for the future. And so we take a lesson from all of this, the state of play in the gold mining industry, the action and activity in, in M&A and corporate growth, and we take that on board at Revival Gold. And so for Revival Gold, focused on growth in gold, that means being in an ESG-friendly uh, part of the world and with a project that has uh, the possibility and the prospects for strong community support and environmental performance. It means making sure we're focused on a brownfields asset that has the potential to be in production in the near term, to be able to capitalize on the cycle in gold today. It also means having option value, where big exploration potential, big ounces, and the possibility for a second phase to our, uh, our operation at Beartrack Arnett is very attractive to uh, investors and corporates alike. And it means that we are positioning ourselves with a team that can endure even when investors aren't particularly interested in the sector. We know they'll be back, but we want to be able to endure with strong support from seasoned investors and a seasoned management team that can manage through the downturns just as easily as we capitalize on the upturns. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And another aspect of all those properties and, and companies you mentioned that were taken over, they're all in, I guess you'd call it a tier one jurisdiction or in safe mining jurisdictions which also seems to be a very big theme. And you guys are located in Idaho, so you're kind of perfectly positioned for all that. Well, Hugh, thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast, and we look forward to talking to you next month. Great speaking with you, Adrian. Thank you. And you can find Revival Gold at revival-gold.com, and we look forward to Hugh's next visit next month. 
Turning to the website, we have a new proposal from the government of Chile, or at least their parliament, for a new royalty on, it sounds like, lithium and copper, which I think are their biggest exports. So we're going to take a closer look. This is a new report from Tom Azapardi, who is a regular contributor on Latin America with these great reports. So taking a closer look, the return of higher copper prices has come in the nick of time for Chile. But as the price for the red metal rallies, politicians believe the mining industry could be contributing significantly more to help the country through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The finance ministry estimates that the rise in copper prices since the start of the year could bolster public revenues by around $4 billion or 5.6% compared to its previous estimate, giving the government more wriggle room as it strives to protect families and businesses from a deadly second wave of infections. Now, to the actual legislation. On March 24th, deputies in Chile's lower house gave their general back-in to a constitutional reform that would impose a flat 3% royalty on the production of copper and lithium to finance environmental and social programs in communities near mining operations. So 3% flat royalty. Now, People like to look at Chile because Chile has had some of the most, I guess for lack of a better word, it's sort of seen as one of the safest jurisdictions in South and Central America for mining companies. So people are taking note, let's say, of this legislation. But now there's an amendment to that proposal. Under an amendment proved at the committee stage on April 26th, the royalty would rise to a marginal rate of 15% when the copper price rises above $2 per pound, 35% above $2.50 per pound, and 75% above $4 per pound. If approved, it requires two-thirds majorities in both the lower and upper houses. If approved, mining companies would lose more than a fifth of their gross revenue to the royalty alone with prices at current levels. It is not just profits that are at stake. Aging infrastructure, falling ore grades, and rising labor costs mean Chile's copper mines are not as competitive as they were at the start of the last super cycle, warns Gustavo Lagos, a professor of mine engineering at Santiago's Catholic University. And we have a response from Manuel Vieira, president of the Chilean Mining Chamber, And he said in a statement, quote, many low-grade operations will be put out of business, destroying jobs. The full impact of the new tax would not be felt immediately. According to the Mining Council of Chile, most privately owned mines are covered by tax and variability agreements signed with the Chilean state. Most of these are due to expire in the coming years, but some newer mines, such as Tech Resources' Cabrada Blanca II, which is still under construction, are protected until early next decade. But the tax would not only threaten existing operations, but also the pipeline of new mines Chile needs to develop to prevent production declining over the coming decades. Skipping a few paragraphs here, there's another constitutional reform that is being proposed, which is at the committee stage, which would impose a one-time 2.5% levy on millionaires to finance basic income for vulnerable households. Not content with that, the deputies also added a temporary hike in corporate taxation for large companies and a cut in sales tax 
for basic household items. So it seems unlikely that they would get that kind of royalty through. And London Mining CEO Maria Inkster said something along those lines. She said, quote, we expect there would be new taxes at some point and that they will be reasonable and not as huge to the industry. So, you know, the fallout from this pandemic, uh, you see it hitting the mining industry directly. Just the fact that this is being proposed may give potential exploration companies and, you know, people in the executive suite at these mining companies, it may give them pause because 75% on copper above $4 per pound, which, and we're at like four fifty, that could become almost a 75% permanent tax on copper. That's quite the royalty. So very interesting report from Tom as a party. And the dynasty continues with Northern Dynasty, who is releasing an ESG report for their Pebble project. So this is by Cecilia Jamesmi, Mining.com, Northern Dynasty Minerals, the company behind the controversial Pebble Copper Gold Molybdenum Silver Project in Alaska, has released an environmental, social, and governance report for the proposed mine as it awaits the results of an appeal to the U.S. government's decision to block the development. And we have a statement by Ron Thiessen, president and chief executive of Northern Dynasty, on April 27th, and he said, quote, for many reasons including the pebble deposit's size and significance, its location in a vast region that supports world-class fisheries, and the active campaigning of national environmental organizations. The pebble project has been marked by public controversy and rhetoric. It's unfortunate because so much of the good work done to plan, permit, develop, and operate a modern copper mine at Pebble that would in many ways set a new standard for responsible mineral development in the U.S., has been obscured. I think it would help, though, if Ron Thiessen really was saying what they're doing different rather than just saying they're doing stuff different. I think, you know, persuasion, I think specifics help. So Northern Dynasty, Never Say Die, is continuing on its two-decade journey to develop the Pebble Copper Project. So a little update on that. Uh, continuing on the governmental theme, the U.S. Department of Energy is providing funds for First Cobalt's Iron Creek Project, and that is also in Idaho. So we have Revival Gold is in Idaho, and here's First Cobalt. So interesting. And this is by Northern Miner staff. The U.S. Department of Energy's Critical Materials Institute is giving Toronto-based junior First Cobalt $600,000 over two years for research on mineral processing techniques for the company's Iron Creek Copper Cobalt Project in Idaho. The funding, matched by the company, will be spent on, quote, identifying more efficient and environmentally friendly methods to process cobalt from pyrite material. First Cobalt announced in a press release and said it would be a, quote, collaborative research project, end quote, with the Colorado School of Mines Kroll Institute for Extractive Metallurgy. So First Cobalt is also working with government funding in Ontario. So starting to look like it's part of their playbook, which frankly, yeah, I mean, I think it's a debatable thing. I, I remember the panel I did on low-grade nickel deposits in Sudbury. There was a bit of a reluctance by the CEOs 
on that panel because I think they thought, you know, if we take money from the government more than the sort of credits and whatever, that they would all of a sudden have, it would maybe complicate their lives in an interesting sort of way. But Trent Mell and First Cobalt are full steam ahead on this. That is happening. Glencore, they have approved the pay package for Gary Nagel. And this was controversial. There was a group of shareholders who thought that Gary Nagel was being compensated uh, with too much money. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Glencore's board approved on Thursday the proposed pay package for incoming chief executive Gary Nagel, despite coming under fire from proxy groups and some investors in recent weeks. Nagel, who is set to take over from Ivan Glasenberg at the end of June, will receive up to $6.4 million a year, as 40% of his bonuses will be held back until two years after he leaves his post. This ignores any share price changes, distributions, or share awards. Chairman Tony Hayward had defended the payment plan, saying he was disappointed that the two advisory firms were against it. And the company said during its AGM results, quote, the company liaised extensively with its largest shareholders in developing the remuneration package and is grateful for their support. We will continue to consult with shareholders regarding their concerns and will consider their feedback as we implement our new remuneration policy. And finally, it says here, quote, the maximum total annual remuneration that the CEO will actually receive during his employment is circa $6.4 million compared to the pure maximum of 11 to $18 million. I'm not an expert in CEO pay, but I didn't think $6.4 million for the CEO of Glencore. I mean, relatively speaking to the rest of what society's making, uh, yeah, it's it's obscene. But on a CEO of a massive mining company, it didn't seem that crazy to me. But, you know, yeah, the fight over money continues. And finally, copper breaches $10,000 per ton and nears record high price. It's by Northern Miner staff. Copper hit $10,008 a ton on the London Metal Exchange nearing the record intraday high of $10,204 set in February 2011. Robert Edwards, principal analyst at the CRU Group, said, quote, it's a great time to be a copper miner, and prices are way, way above what it costs to get the metal out of the ground. For every $1 they spend getting the metal out of the ground, they earn at least $2. Edwards says he thinks there is some runway for the metal to increase in price, but also expects a correction. So you see, it's no accident that Chile is starting to consider higher royalties as these metals hit record prices because they're seeing all this money getting shipped out of the country and they're saying, hey, where's our cut? Uh, also, Robert Edwards says, in the short term, we see the price going higher, but we do think there will be a correction during the second half of this year. Colin Hamilton of BMO Capital Markets noted that breaching the $10,000 per ton threshold, quote, for the first time in over a decade and only the second time in history, underscores the strength of demand recovery that we have seen across the global market, built on solid end-user expectations, but also augmented by financial support on the back of economic growth upgrades and stimulus expectations. So we have Warren Buffett coming out and saying inflation is in the pipeline. I mean, I still go back to my question, my initial question for Jeffrey Christian, which is, what is the relationship between inflation and commodities? And he seemed to say that they both kind of fed into each other. There was no kind of A leads to B. It's sort of like A leads to B, which leads to A, which leads to B. That was sort of my takeaway from that, which sounds right. With all that being said about copper, let's take a look at metal prices and see what's going on over there.
And turning to metal prices, we would like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on May 4th, gold is trading at $1,786.50 per ounce. That is $5 higher than last week. Silver is also trading higher at $26.81 per ounce. That is 56 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,232.64 per ounce. That is $12 lower than last week. And palladium is at $2,976.99 per ounce. So that is $19 higher and just below that $3,000 an ounce mark. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $4.51 per pound. That is 18 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is up 3 cents at $1.11 per pound. Lead is up 4 cents at 96 cents per pound. Nickel is up 60 cents at $7.93 per pound. And tin is up $2.03. It's at $14.60 per pound. So tin rockets higher. Cobalt is down at $20.50 per pound. That is $2.09 lower. And zinc is at $1.32 per pound. That is five cents higher than last week. Overall, most metals are up. Palladium continues to make waves just below that $3,000 an ounce mark. Copper at $4.51 per pound. Nickel strong, tin very strong, with zinc as well, showing a lot of strength and cobalt dialing it back a bit. So it seems like this commodities bull market is heading for new highs. So the big question from the inflation front, I think we have to ask is, will the Fed... And the deflationists be right. Will this inflation, so-called, turn out to be transitory? This is the question. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, Agnico Eagle's Q1 conference call. And there's all sorts of interesting little things in here. No huge newsmaker, but you get the latest on how Agnico is dealing with the virus how they continue to take the safe but sure road to optimize existing assets and concentrate their attention on on a low-risk, high-quality strategy. You hear the latest on their aggressive exploration, including Hope Bay. Remember the TMAC project they acquired? And also East Goldie and the Odyssey deposit over at Canadian Malarctic. This is a company... As I said previously, that is firing on all cylinders. So here it is, Sean Boyd at Agnico's Q1 conference call. I would now like to turn the call over to Chief Executive Officer, Mr. Sean Boyd. You may begin your conference. Thank you, operator, and uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our first quarter 2021 results conference call. Um, we're re- moving through our slide deck, and uh, in that slide deck, we'll be forward-looking information. So please uh, review the cautionary language that uh, is in our uh, 
PowerPoint material. Uh, what I'd like to do is just uh, review a bit of the sort of an overview of, uh, of the strategy, uh, touch on um, the progress we're making on uh, ESG and uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, and what our plans are there uh, going forward in terms of additional investment, um, uh, particularly in the north. Uh, review the, the results of the quarter, talk about our exploration which is a real push for us uh, with a huge increase in our budget this year. Um, so if we look at the quarter again, we essentially were able to build off of the momentum and strength that we saw in the second half of 2020 with the second consecutive quarter of record uh, gold production. Uh, we did that uh, strong operational performance with uh, probably the most employees we've ever had and, the, and, and extremely good safety performance. So not only are we producing more gold, we're doing it uh, very safely. Uh, our costs were slightly better than forecast in the quarter. Financial position uh, remains strong. Uh, we've declared a cash dividend again, um, so that keeps our track record going. Uh, we've been paying, as you know, a cash dividend since 1983. The focus continues to be on growth and execution of our brownfield opportunities and project pipeline. Uh, we're still looking for 24% growth in production from last year out through 2024. As we said, we'll touch on exploration. It's a big part of the story in terms of gathering information on the brownfields opportunities. We're seeing extremely good results at LaRonde. Uh, good results at Meliodine. We featured some results here at uh, Canadian Malarctic and Hope Bay. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, we plan to have a more fulsome exploration update um, later on um, in the second quarter. Uh, what we decided to do is not uh, pile it all into a quarterly release like we did last time. There was just too much information last February. So we'll be able to break it down and uh, provide some forums uh, with our exploration team to be able to discuss the progress we're making on exploration in a number of areas. Having said that, E. Goslen, who runs our exploration uh, group and has been with us for 20 plus years, is on the call here, and he's available to answer questions on, on exploration. So no change in the strategy. It continues to be focused on optimizing the existing assets through taking advantage of the ability to convert more resource to reserve, extending the mine lives of our key uh, mines. Uh, that's a low risk, uh, high quality strategy, uh, given that those are high quality ounces near uh, existing infrastructure. And also we continue to be focused on ESG. We score very well on ESG. Uh, we're recognized as one of the leaders um, in the industry in terms of ESG by a number of external independent uh, rating agencies and research agencies on ESG. Um, we put out our sustainability report. Our annual meeting is today, so uh, we make that available around annual meeting time. So that is out today, and we're adopting a net zero emissions target for 2050, and we've begun the disclosure of scope three emissions. Uh, we're fortunate, uh, and we look at our business because a lot of our production um, is powered by electricity, um, over 50% uh, of our production. So on a relative basis, we have uh, very, very low greenhouse gas emission intensity uh, within the peer group. 
Um, in Nunavut, uh, we are required to use diesel to power those mines. So as we move forward to achieve our targets of reducing and getting to net zero, that will require investments in renewable energy. And we're, as we've talked many times before, we continue to work with the governments on alternatives like wind power and also a power line from northern Manitoba up into Nunavut. Um, in fact, at Hope Bay, the government has given the okay for a wind turbine there. We still have some work to do on that. So we have made some um, pretty good uh, progress there. Uh, we talked about safety earlier, uh, continues to be a priority. We've achieved one of the lowest combined lost time accident uh, records in our history, and we continue to win a number of safety awards at several of our mines. One of the highlights, though, over the last year, it's been challenging for many, um, but our uh, teams have really stepped up in the communities. Uh, they've done a real professional job, a real classy job of not being asked to help, but uh, stepping up and, uh, and taking the initiative to provide uh, food in certain areas, to provide medical assistance in certain areas. Um, as you know, our Nunavut workforce is still at home. Um, it's been over a year. We're getting closer as more vaccinations are uh, being put into people's arms in Nunavut. Uh, they were able to start the vaccination program there earlier. So we're getting to the we're getting closer to the point where we can welcome our Nunavut-based employees back, and we look forward to uh, having uh, them back. As far as the quarter goes, uh, record production for the second consecutive quarter, as we said. Um, without Hope Bay, it was 505. Uh, thousand ounces, um, which is a record that sets us up nicely uh, to meet our guidance, but also to produce two million ounces for the first time in our history, over two million ounces. Uh, that's uh, over 300,000 ounces more than we produced in 2020. So we continue to make uh, very good progress. Our CapEx uh, estimate continues at uh, a little over 800 million, and we talked about the declaration of a quarterly dividend of 35 cents a share. Uh, as we look at the quarter, uh, we're pleased and happy to be, to be delivering strong cash flows, uh, strong earnings, uh, good costs, record production. I think the real value driver, though, is ex continues to be exploration. We saw the beginnings of this about a year ago at several projects. Um, we highlighted, as we said, a few of uh, our exploration results in the quarter in this release. Um, East Goldie, uh, the, the extensive step out there um, is potentially significant because essentially what East Goldie has done is turn what was a very marginal underground project into what will become Canada's largest underground gold mine, which we announced last February. Uh, we have always said from the start that uh, given the location of East Goldie uh, in a a totally different rock package than what the main structure is along that main break in that region. Uh, it opens up the potential, um, and we have over 20 kilometers of ground covering that uh, major structure. So to have a step out over a thousand meters to the east um, is important, we believe. It uh, just demonstrates the immense potential of that area to find additional gold. And as you recall in our study, which we put out in February, uh, we only assumed uh, that we would mine about 7 million ounces of an overall envelope, which is currently known to be in excess of 14 million ounces. 
and here we have a step out a thousand meters to the east of the East Goldie mineralized envelope. So that's why we view it as potentially significant. It's close to the boundary of the Rand Malartic property, which we acquired a couple of years ago. That's a property where there is a 2% NSR, but we have the ability to buy it all back uh, for, I think, $7 million. So um, we just like that area. And I think, as you recall, we've said many times, one of the reasons that we got involved in this back in 2014 is the fact that we were on that uh, in that region for decades and we felt that there was the potential for uh, significant underground opportunity and that's unfolding as we had hoped. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for more results there. At Hope Bay, uh, steady pace of work. Uh, we've got a, a, a team in place um, from Agico that's augmenting the team at Hope Bay. We're making improvements in the operations. Uh, They're focused on the Doris deposit. Exploration is largely focused on Doris. Uh, we think we can extend that uh, part of the operation while we continue to drill uh, Madrid uh, and the Boston deposits. And at Upper Beaver, we had the best reported drill hole intersect ever on that property, over 60 grams, uh, almost 1% copper, uh, a little over 16 meters at a depth of 1,200 meters. So we continue to drill and work on our analysis of the Hope Bay, or of the, both the Hope Bay and the Upper Beaver opportunity. The next slide is really just a long section of Canadian Malarctic. There's 10 rigs going, $30 million program split 50-50 uh, with our partner, uh, Yamana. As we said, uh, the structure is wide open. It covers 20 kilometers. You can see uh, on the right, the Rand Malarctic property boundary. Uh, that's a property that uh, hasn't had uh, much exploration on it, and, and that's why we say the structure is totally uh, wide open, and that will be a main focus of our exploration program because it's the thickness and grade of East Goldie which really drives the entire Odyssey underground uh, mine opportunity. Uh, we also see on the next slide a long section of the Doris uh, deposit at the Hope Bay mine. Uh, just a reminder, the program's $16 million, approximately 70,000 meters of drilling. About 30,000 meters of that is delineating uh, Doris, and 40,000 meters will be exploring targets around Doris, uh, Madrid, and Boston. From an operational perspective, um, we see improvement in recoveries um, at Hope Bay to over 90%. So step-by-step, step, uh, making it a bit better, uh, but the real prize we, we feel here is the two large uh, geological belts, 80 kilometers long. It's going to take some time to drill them. We're not in a hurry here. Um, while we optimize and improve what we have at Doris, we'll be really focused on what is the overall size of the mineralized uh, deposits on these two large trends. And that will form uh, the basis for our analysis to look at how we can expand the production capacity at this operation uh, at some point in the future. As far as uh, operating results, we got really good contribution from several of our big producers. We'll start uh, with Laurent. Um, it, the key to the quarter was really excellent productivity in the West Mine area and at LZ5. At the West Mine area, we were able to produce more uh, than our forecasted uh, mining rate. Um, as we did also at LZ5. And LZ5, uh, we had record production averaging over 3,100 tons a day, uh, which was well above the forecast. 
and that was really driven by uh, ongoing improvements and optimizing the, the usage of automated equipment. Um, and we're also seeing that at the main Laurent deposit. Uh, we continue to um, make steady progress, as we said, at Laurent. 26% uh, of the mucking was done from surface uh, at the Laurent deposit, and at LZ5, 21% of the production uh, mucking was automated, hauling done from surface. So um, good, solid progress there. We continue the exploration pro program. Uh, we're going to we're developing three exploration drifts to explore areas uh, below LZ5 uh, from one kilometer to three kilometers below surface, uh, which essentially Eric and Lack prior to that really didn't do much exploration on. So that's the same rock package. It hosts all the deposits on Laurent, so it's wide open. Um, so excellent exploration potential. And that type of program is really a key component of our full potential program to understand uh, how we can continue to optimize these large cash flow generators and extend the mine lives. And we see potential to do that at uh, several of our mines, including uh, Laurent. Gold X, uh, steady progress, 35,000 ounces, uh, good cost performance, uh, largely driven by the continued outperformance of the railveyor system. Um, it was above target at over 7,000 tons a day on average in the quarter. Uh, so that technology, uh, the teams have done an excellent job in not only uh, looking at how they could apply it at Goldex, but actually uh, ramping up and improving its uh, productivity. Continue to explore that deposit, particularly around the south zone, which is higher grade. Uh, so good solid performance coming out of Goldex. At Canadian Malartic, again, good contribution, producing almost 90,000 ounces, our half of that operation. We had record tons mined in January. Uh, mill performance was above target, averaging uh, over 58,000 uh, tons a day on a 100% basis. So good, good performance there. Um, we talked about the Odyssey uh, drilling, uh, and that'll be a key part of this project as we look forward. Uh, what we saw in February, as we said at, at the time, uh, was basically what we would call the first cut. Um, this will be optimized continually as we go forward, particularly as we understand how much gold exists in the Pontiac sediments, which host the East Goldie deposit. So this could have a meaningful impact on the valuation of that opportunity at Canadian Arctic. Kitsila set records in March for monthly gold production and tonnage milled. Uh, they're also making good progress on autonomous production, um, both in drilling and haulage. Uh, trials were underway in Q1. That will be important for that mine as it, it um, looks to expand further. Um, we are impacted by COVID there in terms of the Kitsila shaft and delays there uh, because the team that was doing the work is, is uh, out of country. Um, and so there are travel restrictions uh, going in and out of uh, Finland, which has held us back. We've been transitioning into local employees there. Um, that doesn't really impact our ability to do the ounces because we can simply take them uh, from the ramp system, it's just a little bit more costly to be using the ramp. But um, we'll get uh, the shaft in place uh, second half of uh, next year, about six months behind uh, schedule. Meadowbank steady improvement produced about 80,000 ounces. Uh, they set a record in March for long haul trucking uh, performance. So uh, good, steady, uh, solid improvement there. 
uh, with good uh, production coming, particularly in March, which allowed them to post a quarter of about 80,000 uh, ounces. At Meliadine, um, when you add in the uh, Tiraganiac ounces, Meliadine produced more gold than any of our other mines for the first time, uh, producing 96,000 ounces. So we've made major uh, advances in terms of productivity. Uh, we processed uh, 4,600 tons a day, uh, which was the target. Over the last year or so, gradually working up to that target, we expect to be at 4,800 tons a day by the fourth quarter of this year and ultimately continue to expand uh, to 6,000 tons a day uh, by 2025. This is another project which will be long life. Um, we have continued to explore it, um, starting exploration drilling back about 18 months ago once we uh, got into commercial production. We continue to get good intersections at Pump South and West Meg, um, which indicate that the deposit continues to be wide open um, at depth as we drill it. So um, in Mexico, uh, steady performance, good cash generation there. Uh, La India, a um, little bit of an issue with water. Uh, we would expect to be able to ramp up production in the second half of, of the year there. Uh, but when you add it all up, uh, pre Hope Bay, 505,000 ounces approximately, uh, which was a record. That generated good earnings, uh, good cash flow per share of $1.47, uh, which is a strong quarter. Our financial position remains strong. We paid cash for Hope Bay, including the buyback or buy down of the royalty uh, that was on that uh, property. Um, so as we move forward, we'll continue to rebuild that cash position as we generate strong net free cash flow. So just a quick summary, as we said, second consecutive quarter of record production. Uh, we continue to be focused on delivering the growth of 24% from last year out through 2024 as we focus on brownfield opportunities and our project pipeline. Uh, as we get more information on these opportunities uh, through our uh, expanded exploration budgets, we can provide updates on that. Our focus is still on low geopolitical risk regions. We think that's extremely important as we look at the business going forward. Um, these are places we're very comfortable being in. We've operated in them for a number of years. A big part of our strategy is synergies and um, being able to transfer uh, technology, uh, but also uh, knowledge and experience between these operations to help uh, uh, keep our costs down, but also to help us understand new opportunities. And there you have it, Sean Boyd, President and CEO of Agnico Eagle Mines. And yeah, I do think of Agnico Eagle as basically a bellwether of Canadian mining. They have an international operation, but I don't consider them as international as a company like Barracks. So again, Taking the pulse on Canadian gold mining here at the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold. 
and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com. And you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.